You have 24 minutes. You have 24 minutes, the podcast from 24 Hour Nation. 24 Hour Nation provides news and information for nighttime advocates and adventurers. Follow us online at 24hournation.com and on social media at 24 Hour Nation. My name is Randall White. My guest today is Rachel Clark, Education Manager for the national nonprofit organization Dance Safe. If you are a music or dance festival attender or producer, or if you care about those who attend music and dance events, this 24 minutes episode might be of particular interest to you. Dance Safe offers programs that range from drug education to political advocacy to sexual health education. The group is perhaps best known for its Dance Safe booths at festivals and events where volunteers distribute earplugs, provide facts, advocate for consent, and test drugs so revelers may make informed decisions for themselves. Uniquely, Dance Safe also manufactures drug checking kits. Buckle up. Here's 24 Minutes with Rachel Clark. DanceSafe is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we've been functioning since 1998, I believe, is when we officially opened our doors. But we've been we've been known for many years as the organization that tests your drugs at festivals and parties, etc. But the reason it's complicated is because DanceSafe as an organization is really about whole person fulfillment and non-judgmental and unbiased information about the most taboo topics around health, basically. So drug, sex, consent are probably the biggest three, but we also provide millions of free earplugs, millions of free condoms every year. What sets us apart as a nonprofit is, I would say, our, our focus on promoting individual autonomy in a way that recognizes that we don't know what's best for you. You know what's best for you. And we're not abstinence-based. We're based on a recognition that we don't know what's best for you. What's best for you could be doing ketamine every weekend with your friends for six months and then stopping. And what's best for you could be doing cocaine on a regular basis to build out your social circles. It could be using heroin to unwind after a long day. That's your prerogative. We're here to ensure that you have the resources necessary to reduce the risks, but also enhance the benefits to promote fulfillment. For event producers or club owners or nighttime economy managers, for these and other nighttime advocates that will be listening to this podcast, when our 24 minutes is up with you, what do you want? What does Dance Safe want these listeners to know or do? Probably the most, the single most helpful thing that any individual can do is to take matters into their own hands and really utilize the resources that are available to want to know more. We can't force anyone to want to know more, but there is a reason that we've been doing this for 25 years and have such a rabid follower base. And it's because we provide the space for people to find themselves out without trying to steer their process. And in order for people to understand that, because it can be controversial because we're not just a hard abstinence-based organization, which is really unusual in the nonprofit world, people have to want to understand why we do that. And it starts with being able to ask questions and be curious and actually go to our social media profiles, go to our website, read what we have written there, make use of the resources we provide and ask questions because it can be really tempting to dig your heels in and say, no, 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 that's ridiculous, that's outrageous. And for many people, it is outrageous, but we want you to challenge the biases and the stigmas that you might hold. 
And that doesn't mean that you have to ultimately agree with us, but we want you to challenge it. And you're talking about creating a safe space, really, for people to safer. go safer place. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We can't guarantee full safety, you know. Right. Well, and speaking of going to your website and asking questions, there's a wonderful statement on your website about Dance Safe isn't your average public nonprofit. Now, there's also a message used here about consent deep dive. And I'm not sure what that means. What does consent deep dive mean? So one of the main things that we're working on cultivating within DanceSafe is a consent culture. And consent culture goes much deeper than just how it's traditionally conceptualized, which is in the realm of sex. We refer to consent as a practice of vulnerability and sharing space with other people on the planet. Like it's a pretty essential part of just like existing around other humans. I mean, but we have a whole program called We Love Consent that actually released an entire series called Healing is Power recently about power dynamics and consent in the nightlife and music industry, including information about grooming, power dynamics between artists and fans, ways that people can practice consent in a much more substantial way, emotional consent, physical consent, and non-sexual interactions. Like everything you do around other people is a balance of reaching homeostasis and consent, really. And a lot of people have an issue with consent, right? Yes, they do. And <laughs> they really do. How do you manage that? How do you manage when there's this force of folks that go, well, you, you shouldn't have that right to have consent over your own experiences? It's complicated. It's really complicated. It's something that we work on cultivating as a community, but that's why we say it's, nothing is fully a safe space because we're only able to really engage in like an internal locus of control. It's really difficult to guarantee the behaviors of other people. It's impossible to guarantee the behaviors of other people. What we try to do is set up kind of a social expectation. Social pressure is really powerful when utilized in a positive direction. And what positive means is subjective, of course, but we consider it to be a positive direction when artists are now putting up posters inside porta potties, reminding people to engage in consent practices, having actual protocols inside of a venue to make it clear what happens if there's a consent violation that's reported by someone in the venue. And people are not experts in this. Like people aren't experts in anything they're not experts in. It takes thousands of hours to be an expert. So it's okay to defer to the experts, which is why we've created the resources in the hope that it will have a splash effect. And you have those resources. Many of those resources are on the website, correct? Yes, they okay. are. Now, I first learned about you from a colleague who produces electronic dance music and events. And he said, oh, have you heard about the Dance Safe booths? And I thought, I know. No, I haven't. And that's how I first began to track you down. So what takes place at these? How are they staffed? How does a, 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 an event arrange to have one? Uh, so I'll start with the last question, which is that events usually will reach out to us, actually. So we have an event services form on our website, and you can just contact us directly through that. Sometimes people will reach out directly to chapters. So the way that we're structured is we have the national hub, which consists of about five staff members and about 20 contractors, I would say, maybe a little less than 20 contractors. And together we form like the central basis of DanceSafe. And then we have kind of a hub and spoke model where there are, I think, about 20 active chapters around the country right now in different major city hubs that um, basically operate as miniature dance safes, but they're all volunteer led. So there are officers that hold more uh, authority and, and responsibility within the chapter. And then there are volunteers that get pulled in to work certain events. And then sometimes national will work an event ourselves where we're pulling staff members or contractors to oversee operations. Usually we do this with much larger events like lightning in a bottle um, or Halloween. And 
for a given event, either the local chapter or national will put out a call for volunteers. And depending on the event, there are to- there are so many things that can go into what that looks like specifically. But usually there are be- between four and 20 volunteers in an event. And we'll have the booth open. It's like a- an easy up with a few tables. And we have our fabled drug information cards that have these really fun colorful images. They're on the website under the drug info page and unbiased information about those cards or about those drugs on the back of the cards. So it's not like nothing like this is like dare. Like you look on the back of the card and it says, here's the dose approximately for a given route of administration. Here are many of the reported subjective effects, the physical effects. Here are some things you should look out for. Be cautious of these things. Here are some ways that you can baby proof your environment for this drug. So it's very point blank and people sometimes come up to us thinking we're an anti-drug agency right. and it's funny seeing them like laughing as they approach ready to try and shred us and then they get closer and they're like oh and we have like bowls of free condoms free candy of all sorts um consent informed consent checklists information cards even these perforated recycled paper business cards where you can tear off a little piece and roll it up into an individual snorting straw because sharing straws can spread hep c so that's what the booth set up looks like and there's different flares to it depending on the chapter and depending on the event we'll never test in an event unless we've been given explicit permission by the promoter to do so but oftentimes that's under a plausible deniability model so it's never in writing anywhere there's never any contract they will look the other way and we do it or sometimes they'll explicitly be like we want you to advertise that you are testing here and at other times we can even bring the ftir out which is advanced drug checking And we've done that at several events this year. And it's really cool seeing the data visualization from that and seeing the drug trends in different regions at festivals, catching stuff like quaaludes that are not quaaludes, of course. Mm, (laughs) There are no quaaludes on the market. Well, there are very rarely. So so when you do that, though, you do catch trends. What trends have you noticed that have kind of uh, brought your eyebrows up? What's interesting about this sample size and the Uh sample is that we are very different than a lot of other drug orient well not we're not fully drug oriented but a big part of what we do is stuff around drugs right. we're the only nonprofit drug checking camp manufacturer in the whole country okay and so a lot of what we do is centered in kind of more the layperson's population as opposed to ssps or syringe exchanges which are really more targeted towards a specific demographic of people right. who use drugs right so we see the trends in the drugs that people want to use to party and specifically party at festivals or at shows. But we see a massive uh, uptake in ketamine use in recent years. That's huge. There's so much more ketamine use. Um, There was a spike in novel dissociatives a few years ago. So things like um, 2FDCK and DCK, which have really fallen off since then, um, will occasionally catch a new caponone like dimethylpentalone which replaced N-ethylpentalone recently. Occasionally we'll get total curveballs, like people bringing in a giant rock that was sold to them as a half G of MDMA and it's actually Epsom salts. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, I hope right? they paid good money for that. Yeah, yeah seriously. And then I, the same guy was selling it or giving it away later in the days so that someone came by, yeah, I got this rock for free and it's also Epsom salts. Right. <laughs> Thank yeah. you, Mr. Man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but of course the hot button topic is always fentanyl. Everyone right. wants to know how much fentanyl are you finding? And until probably two weeks from now, it's been really difficult for us to actually test for the presence of fentanyl in events because fentanyl strips are difficult to use. They're kind of like a high barrier for really doing them correctly ah. because you, you need to dissolve your entire bag and let the water evaporate out. 
which almost no one is willing to do with their cocaine at a festival. Like you just I will did, not find people doing that. I was unaware of that. So that, that really, who wants to do that? Right. Yeah. What do you say about from two weeks from now? You said some reference. Yes. So we actually, the current issue with fentanyl test strips is that every single fentanyl test strip currently on the market produces false positives with MDMA, meth, cocaine that contains levamisol or lidocaine, diphenhydramine, methadone. Like there's a whole slew of things that will give a false positive with fentanyl test strips. Okay. And we've spent almost a year working in secret with a, a company that has developed a new antibody or fentanyl test strips that does not produce false positives with any of the drugs that we've tested. That's not to say it's impossible, but the fentanyl antibody itself embedded in the strips needs to be a certain level of specificity and sensitivity. And the current strips were developed for urine testing. They weren't developed specifically for drug testing. So the sensitivity will be different because if you're detecting like micrograms in someone's piss, it's very different than dissolving like an ounce of someone's ketamine to test. Correct, right. So in the next few weeks, we're releasing DanceSafe branded fentanyl test strips that are hopefully going to completely change how we can test for the presence of fentanyl. Because right now, if you don't include really specific instructions, well, 10 milligrams of MDMA for one teaspoon, 50 milligrams of cocaine for one teaspoon. Right. Um, it's people get false positives with their MDMA all the time and freak out and dox their dealers on Twitter. And then we have to clean that up. So the actual prevalence of fentanyl at events is completely unknown because it's really quite rare for someone to actually overdose and pass away at an event from an opioid or actually have an opioid overdose. But people are freaking out and thinking that anyone that's passed out at a festival, which is super common, is the product of an overdose. So people leaving fentanyl test strips in bathrooms with no instructions, for instance, right. might be more harmful than it is helpful. Right. How because, helpful? Yeah. Right. The, the results just don't mean anything. Like you don't actually know if you over-concentrated it and got a false positive or if you over-diluted it and got a false negative. You just right. have no idea. Right. So it's just throwing the strips away. Well, is this is this a, just a sense of, of, of we've got a problem, we have to throw something at it just to show that we're doing something about it rather than being being really helpful? And well, it's complicated because the people that are providing free fentanyl test strips are like going around at events and testing for fentanyl in the crowd and stuff like that. The the core human activity there is doing something in an effort to be good to other people. Right. And we want to nurture that. It's not like people are going into this being like, we want to spend thousands of dollars on fentanyl test strips and throw them in the garbage. Like right. that's not the idea. It never has been. People just do not know. If people are made aware and it's explained to them why false positives actually lead to long-term poor public health behavior, which I could explain if you would like. Sure, um, let's do Let's go there. Okay, cool. So what happens when people get false positives is a, a number of things are kind of like on that, that possibility tree. One of them is that people take the drugs anyway because it just doesn't seem that likely, and then they're fine, and they're like, oh, well, either... I'm immune to fentanyl. People have said this to us before on many occasions. I'm immune to fentanyl because my drugs tested positive, but I was fine when I took them. Or they're like, the strips don't work. And so that means that people might find out about the false positives and be like, well, I must have over-concentrated. I'll just keep diluting until I get a negative. Uh. What, the, what is the point of that? So those are the three main outcomes is either I'm immune to fentanyl, the strips don't work, I'm going to not use them at all. It's a waste of my money and time. Or I'm just going to keep diluting because this is probably a false positive. And what that means is that ultimately the strips are completely useless when people use them in that way. 
so people will usually be like, oh, well, you'd rather get a false positive than someone not testing at all. And it's like, uh, not really when someone tests their molly, gets a positive result, throws away $300 of drugs, and then finds out that their friends did it and were totally fine or whatever. Like it, it totally changes the way that they conceptualize and trust drug checking. People need to trust drug checking because people don't trust public health authorities because COVID made everything complicated and people have no idea what's real and what's not. So we are trying our damnedest to serve as a beacon of trustworthiness in this. So for the first time ever, we're completely and totally transparent about these test strips, exactly what their limitations are, exactly how we've tested them, exactly what they can and cannot do, and that you should always still use Narcan and never or have Narcan on hand and never use alone whenever possible anyway, no matter what your test results say. So that's... Okay. No, that's a, you, that, 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 yeah, no, 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 no. Dance safe is, is activating this space that is between these two extremes, I think, in our culture. And this is critically important. It's very authentic and very needed. And the focus on trust is um, apparently a major issue in our society. And so that you're carrying this beacon into the nighttime space, into the uh, festival space and event space is incredibly important. I want to talk a little bit about harm reduction and what that means. Harm reduction is almost a jargony word. And when I mm-hmm. when I speak about harm reduction, people go, what the hell are you talking about? But but so talk about harm reduction, harm minimization, this, mm-hmm. this space that's non-judgmental. Talk about how important that is and the challenges you face in trying to carry that beacon forward? So harm reduction as a phrase was developed a long time ago and has a history that's very much rooted in Black and queer activism um, or BIPOC and queer activism. And so currently, the way that harm reduction is explained and applied is going to vary based on community a little bit and also vary based on specific application. So for instance, um, condoms being harm reduction, Uh, using safer snorting devices being harm reduction, testing your drugs being harm reduction, but also uh, legalizing sex work being harm reduction. Like there are so many ways that this can be applied. As a general principle, it is recognizing that people are engaging in human behaviors and trying to morally subjugate them or politically subjugate them is only going to push them underground in such a way that people are at more risk of harm. Um, So it really begs the question of, are we doing these things to be right Or are we doing these things because there's a desired outcome of reducing negative consequence for individuals and communities? And what we find is a lot of cognitive dissonance, a lot of confirmation bias, people being totally unwilling and unable to accept that abstinence does not, it just is a complete dumpster fire. Like it it is so unequivocally unsuccessful. Yeah. The Nancy Reagan, don't just say no days. Yeah. It just, it literally doesn't work. Like there's a whole forum of economists who came out with this giant publication saying the war on drugs is a financial and fiscal impossibility. You cannot do this, but there's so much complexity to this. So Dance Save right now is operating more on a model of risk reduction and benefit maximization to be very specific in that we are not only reducing harms because we're not. People's lives are drastically improved much of the time by their drug use. And other times their lives are completely derailed and the duality is lost on us. Both of those extremes and everything in between exists and we can hold space for all of it. But it's a very tender topic, especially when people have lived experience or experience with their family or friends who have been derailed by their drug use. And it's really difficult to have those conversations and honor that reality for people. 
while also asking those people to honor the reality of others. I'm talking with Rachel Clark, who's an incredibly brilliant education manager for Dance Safe. You can learn more about Dance Safe on their website at dancesafe.org. They're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. The last question I want to ask is, so I'm a parent and I'm in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho or uh-huh. Wichita, Kansas, and my child is going off to an event and I learn as a parent that Dance Safe is going to be at that event. Mm-hmm. What meaningful, safer harbor can I encourage my child to check out by visiting the Dance Safe booth? Oh my God, it would be amazing for a parent. That's actually how I got familiar with Dance Safe. My dad bought me a test kit when I was 16 because I needed it from Dance Safe. And it, uh, I work for Dance Safe. Like you can see how that moves when you introduce your children to this concept that it doesn't have to be like this. Um, and let me tell you, I hit my head on plenty of brick walls in adolescence and my dad really just had to sit with his hands on his lap and hope for the best. You just have to let your kids steer after a certain point. If you, if it's mainly clear that they're going to be steering, even if you try, because if both of you have your hands on the wheel, the car will just go off the road entirely. And then your kid will never talk to you again. And that's what happened with my other parent. If you are aware that a dance safe booth will be present at an event, It's a great opportunity, not only for your kid to not prematurely lose their hearing, like so many of our patrons do, um, because we give away tons of earplugs and we also have reusable ones for 20 bucks that are really nice to sleep with them every night. Um, But also to come and collect them all with our drug information cards. A lot of people are very shy about asking questions about drugs. And the cards give a really great opportunity for people to engage in some self-education, want to know more. Um, go to psychonotwiki.org and start learning about the doses, the risks, the interactions, um, engage in that open dialogue with other people about what you're doing, even if it's just soundboard off of them and be like, I'm feeling really nervous about being here. I want to try Molly for the first time. And you wouldn't believe what changes when people are able to ask questions. And dance volunteers are not drug experts. They're just peers who care about you. And sometimes having that is all you need. Like plenty of people come to the dance safe booth and just sit with us. If they're overwhelmed by the crowd, having a panic attack, feeling kind of socially anxious or nervous about belonging in the space. Like the dance safe volunteers do an amazing job of gassing people up and their volunteers, like they dedicate hours and hours of their time and their own resources and money to create a space where that's possible. And it's extremely rare. And let me tell you, Every time I go to an event that does not have anything like a sanctuary or a dance safe booth, I notice it. And the one time that I've ever actually had to seek a sanctuary at a festival and it wasn't there, I all of a sudden was like, okay, I'm usually fairly autonomous at these things. But now I really, I'm really able to receive the benefit of my own service. We're, we're not a sanctuary, but like, that's the idea is having someone there doing that work. It really makes you just feel held in those spaces and like you're able to fuck up and not knowing what to do and be honest about that. This has been Season 1, Episode 24 of 24 Minutes from 24 Hour Nation. Find us online at 24hournation.com and on social media at 24 Hour Nation.